Welcome to Mandate. Today on the program is Laura Johnson, a nurse practitioner who specializes in caring for children with diabetes and who knows about type 1 diabetes firsthand. Stay with us. And welcome, my friends, to another wonderful episode of Mandate. I am Joe Obermuller and am joined, as always, by my good friend, Mr. Ben Krush. What's up, everybody? Ben, it's a beautiful day. Beautiful how you, day. How you doing? Doing very well, Joe Obermuller. Thank you. How uh, are you? I'm good. Uh, I love the green and the spring, but my allergies are going crazy, my friend. It's about that time of year. Oh it is gosh. the unfortunate opposite side of the coin for the beautiful weather we have that's here. right everything is cold and frozen and dead and then your body's like oh i guess this is the way it's going to be <laughs> and then spring happens and then your body's like wait a minute what is happening to me <laughs> absolute so, chaos lots of snot but i think i'm going to be okay for this uh super excited about our conversation today ben i am absolutely excited this is a wonderful lady in my life in my wife's life we met via the crossfit and have become dear friends since, and we are welcoming Miss Laura Johnson to Mandate. Laura, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Good. Well, we are very excited to have you. This is going to be an informational podcast. We are going to talk about some diabetes stuff. So why don't you tell people about your journey in terms of education and your why for how you got into this nurse practitioner position that you're in right now? Yeah, so I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was three years old. And so having first hand experience with that and experiencing always interacting with medical people who never had diabetes was very influential on me. And it was when I was 16, I decided I wanted to help kids who were in the same situation as mine based on my diabetes educator when I was 16. Her name was Janie. So decided I wanted to be a certified diabetes educator. So I went and got my undergraduate degree, which is a four-year degree, to be a registered nurse. Took my registered nurse exam, worked in that position for a while, and then went on to get my certified diabetes educator certification, which is a 1,000 hours of working in diabetes you have to do, and then it's an extra test you take. Thought that was going to be my end goal. Decided, want something more. Went back to NP school. Didn't think there was going to be a job in diabetes at that time. There was nothing in Sioux Falls at that time in diabetes. Wanted to stay here. The stars all aligned. God had an amazing plan for me. And after I graduated, boom, there was a nurse practitioner job in diabetes. And that's how I got where I am. That is absolutely unbelievable. And it's a magical part of your story that I know. And mm -hmm. so I'm glad listeners got into it because there is some some God mm -hmm. playing a part of what you are doing now. Absolutely. So I think what we need to do is we need to talk about the difference between type 1, type 2 diabetes and no better person than an absolute professional. So what I want to do is can you educate our listeners on what the two differences are? Yes. Yeah, so and why it's important. Correct. There is a lot of misunderstanding out in the world about people think diabetes is diabetes. Diabetes in general essentially means you have too much sugar in your bloodstream. 
but with type 1 versus type 2 diabetes, they happen for different reasons. So I always like to explain things at about a fifth grade level. That's one big thing about education. So with type 2 diabetes, about 90 to 90% of diabetes in the U.S. is type 2. It's often just called diabetes. So when you see commercials on TV and they say diabetes, it's probably that they're talking about type 2. What happens in type 2, our body still makes insulin, but it can't use it effectively. So for some reason, it's like your body is blocking that action of insulin. So treatment really focuses around how can our body use our insulin more effectively through diet, through exercise. It's more of a progressive disease where some people might be early on, they just need exercise and diet. Some might need oral pills to help that insulin essentially be more potent. Some might be to the point where their body doesn't make much anymore of insulin and need insulin. But with type 2, um, it's very much so runs in families. It can happen if you are overweight. That fat kind of acts as an insulin blocker. But the biggest difference is type 2, your body still makes insulin. It just can't use it effectively. Type 1 diabetes accounts for about 5% of diabetes in the U.S. Typically, it happens more so in kids. It can be diagnosed later on in life, though, as well. With type 1 diabetes, it's called an autoimmune disease. So think about your immune system. When you get a cold, it fights it off. Sometimes our immune system gets confused, and it can attack certain parts of our body. So with type 1, the immune system has actually attacked those insulin-producing cells, and you essentially have no ability to make insulin because your immune system's killed them all off. So with type 1 diabetes, you have to inject insulin because you don't have any. So you either need to inject that via shots, an insulin pump, or some manner. But there's a lot of confusion out there. A lot of people say to type 1s, oh, well, don't you know if you just lost some weight, if you just exercise more, if you ate right, you know, you wouldn't need insulin. And that's absolutely not the case. Every type 1 needs insulin. Otherwise, they would die. So one thing I'm fascinated fascinated about when it comes to especially type one is it seems that you know it, it's a it's an easy thing to see if someone has diabetes right you there's usually some kind of mm-hmm. contraption mm-hmm. on them and then that's where people feel like they can interject so it's almost like there is this t- unfair almost like what we see with races or with different sexes people think that they can interject their opinions why is that if i knew the reason why people felt they were able to interject on my life i i don't know i don't understand why people do that you know i've had many comments to me oh you must have been fat when you were a kid oh you can't eat that Uh, even medical people you know there's been some nurses i used to work with who would make very ignorant mean comments about oh nope you can't eat that it's almost like people are the diabetes police you know and I always say you know if someone was smoking I'm not going to walk by them and say like oh you're going to get lung cancer but yet there's people out there who make jokes if someone's eating a candy bar oh you're going to get diabetes the audacity of that is unbelievable so wait uh, hold on a second you can you like is there a specific example of this happening that you can recall. I just can't, uh, this is like, I'm sort of surprised by this as I'm listening to you say that. 
that that would be like you're talking about it right now as if it's 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 like been such a common experience. It's not been as common now that I work in the diabetes world because people are very well educated about it. But I did have a fellow person, obviously I won't say who they are. Someone said, oh, hey, there's cupcakes in the break room. And I didn't even say anything. I think I was the one who said, hey, there's cupcakes in the break room. And she goes, well, you can't eat that. That's not good for you with your diabetes. Or there was another gal they were asking about my continual glucose sensor that monitors my blood sugar and asking, when do people get that? You know, asking all these questions, which I love to answer people's questions. And I had said how at that point I had diabetes for about 20 years and that, you know, I was doing pretty good. I could still feel if I had a low blood sugar because sometimes people lose that ability. And this other person said, oh yeah, usually people are dead by then which is completely not true. Right. <laughs> so just very ignorant comments. Mainly it's around food. I think, don't you think people are trying, I'm just trying to find the silver lining here. People aren't necessarily trying to be malicious, right? They just, they just misunderstand it or, they're, or, or they think they're being helpful. Because the question I have about this is because people don't understand this and many other things, just misconceptions about whatever it is, and if they have, what's, if they have questions about it, how do they ask those questions? Like you, you said you, you like answering questions about diabetes, and, and, and so giving people information is great. How do people, like, hey, I see this contraption that you have. Tell me about it. Like what's the best way for someone to... First of all, you and I have both called it contraption. What is it called? So what, what I wear is an insulin pump okay. and then also a continual glucose sensor, which the insulin pump gives me insulin. The continual glucose sensor, or I call it a Dexcom, that's the brand name, tells me what my glucose level is. Okay. Thanks, Ben. I think you just modeled the answer to my question. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I rem- this is why I bring it up because Laura, again, we met at CrossFit, and so CrossFit... Uh, men and women wear tight clothes. It's just kind of the nature of the beast. And I remember one of the very first weeks, I was like, Laura, can you tell me about that? Like, mm-hmm. I am. I will come up and ask the question. Like, mm-hmm. I do not know enough about diabetes. I Can you tell me why you have that on? And then you just, you're great at that. You're mm-hmm. such a great person. And I think that talks, uh, that talks to a lot of other ailments, right? I mean, air quotes, listeners, that happen to people. We don't know how to ask the question mm-hmm. and all that person wants is to be asked the question. Yeah. Like I, I have a neighbor and she is a lovely lady and she is a paraplegic. And she's like, the number one thing, the number one comment I get is excuse me because people won't see her, right? Because she's in a wheelchair and people are like, oh, excuse me. And that, that's so offensive to her. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense because people are just, they don't want to be rude. They don't know the question to ask. They don't have enough education on it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's any different in diabetes. People are like, oh, I don't, I don't want to make her feel shame. Which in then, if you're not asking, that creates shame as well. Yeah. And I think it's tough, too, because some people are very, very private about their diabetes. I remember there was a girl who lived in my dorm room freshman year. I didn't know she had type 1 until the end of the school year because she just didn't tell people. And I've always really been an open book about it, love educating people about it. I think the biggest thing for me is the type of tone you use when you ask it. And if you are just genuinely 
curious, you know, if you ask, hey, I see you're wearing something I don't recognize. Can you tell me about that? Or even if it comes to sugar, you know, I've heard that diabetes, people with diabetes can't eat sugar. Is that true? Can mm -hmm. you explain that to me? I mean, I think it's all about your intent, your eagerness, your tone, mm -hmm. instead of being the diabetes police of, oh, you can't eat that. Right. Okay, so we're talking, for the most part, the general population, type 2 diabetes, mm -hmm. that a lot of that can be taken away or, or can be rehabilitated or even stayed away from when it comes to exercise and diet. That is that correct? A bit of it. You know, it does run strongly in families. Okay. There's some people who are really overweight and don't have type 2 diabetes. Sure. There's some people, I would say about 80% of people with type 2 are overweight, mm -hmm. but there are those tall string beans who have a very strong family history of it, and they get it. So for them, losing weight isn't necessarily an option. Living a healthy lifestyle, eating healthy is definitely going to delay it or keep you in that early progression of maybe I just need diet, exercise, and pills. So there is definitely that portion of it, but some people say they have a really strong family history. Sometimes it is inevitable to an extent, mm -hmm. but it is highly based on lifestyle. Highly based. Mm -hmm. Like what percentage of those people would you say it's a lifestyle choice? I would say just with the fact of about 80% of people with type 2 are overweight, it would probably be around that amount. I don't know the exact scientific sure. amount, but from what I've seen, that would be my guesstimation. If Got you it. had to rank lifestyle choices in order of importance, like maybe you coach people in, in this way a lot, mm -hmm. which, which one is at the top in terms of like making a lifestyle change? Mm -hmm. Start with this one. So for type two, it would definitely be their diet and what they eat. A lot of people are drinking sugary beverages, pop, things like that. They're empty calories. I would say diet is definitely the biggest because if they're eating a large amount of sugar, amount of carbs, that's what makes their blood sugar go up. I had a feeling that would that was going to be the answer. And, and, and I'm glad it is because I think it brings up something that I want to ask you about. As it turns out, food is a really personal thing. And nobody wants to be told what food they can or can't eat. So there's that. And then there is just the, the particular challenge of changing habits. Uh, how do you go about coaching people on this subject? Do you find that it's really kind of, you have to like tear down a lot of, a lot of walls in order to get into like, hey, you got to think about your diet and this is what it looks like. Yep. So it's definitely different for my type two patients versus my type one. But I would say for both adjusting how you eat, and granted they're different, is probably the toughest part for people. For my kiddos who have type two and it is mainly based around lifestyle, I try and focus on one goal at a time. So think about like a crash diet. If all of a sudden you overhaul your diet and go extreme, cut out every bad thing, you might be successful for one to two weeks, but you're going to fall off the bandwagon. So my opinion is if you want sustainable change, make one small change at a time. Once that become, becomes habit, let's add something else. So one of the first things I ask those kids with type 2 or maybe they're there for, you know, they've had a little bit higher blood sugar, but they're not quite type 2 yet, is do you drink any pop, Gatorade, any sugar-sweetened beverages in the house? If they do, really it has to be a family change because if mom's still buying it and has it in the house, they're going to drink it. 
I mean, if there's potato chips in my house, I'm going to eat it. So you got to stop it at the store and it has to be a family change. So I would say that's the first thing, doing one thing at a time, waiting till that's habit and then trying to add another. Maybe it's, hey, I want you to get 30 minutes of exercise this week. That's your goal three times. Um, starting off small, working up to bigger goals. So we're staying in type two. I want to get to type one because I'm fascinated by type one, especially working with kids. Mm-hmm. Type two, are you also serving a little bit? I mean, obviously it's a nutrition coach, but is there some psychology that goes into this when it comes to parents? Do parents feel guilt especially when it comes to kids like kids type two if it's not familial Mm -hmm. then it must be mostly Mm -hmm. lifestyle Mm -hmm. one are you dealing with remorse Mm -hmm. or two are you dealing with ignorance you know that's a really tough question to answer I would say most kiddos do have a family history of it Mm -hmm. if they're getting it that early and they're typically overweight you know with our culture food is so significant you know if how do we reward people how do we reward kids with food what do we do when we get together for celebrations we celebrate with food so typically I think there is a lot of that and that's a really tough area to address and fix so my philosophy is okay we can't change what happened in the past but let's make some goals moving forward and focus on what we can control now that's a good question Ben I think there's probably I mean I don't know anything but I I would think that there's a lot of psychology that goes into it especially when it comes to social situations like you're talking about Mm -hmm. everywhere you go for a celebration there are things there that you know that are probably not the healthiest thing to eat. I, I think about that in terms of like parties at school and stuff where, you know, parties happen or whatever and cupcakes come in and candy comes in. And um, it's, I mean, as a kid, it's like, that's pretty tough to not only mm-hmm. like say no to the thing, but also watch all your friends eat the thing and feel really left out. And gosh, there's got to be a lot wrapped up into that. Yeah, there is. And then I, with type one, you know, there's a bunch of different things we can do so the kid can still enjoy that, you know, occasional cupcake. But when, really, when you think about it, what kid needs a cupcake for a birthday party? I mean, really, no one should be eating cupcakes all the time. It's just other people can get away with it who don't have diabetes because they don't have to think about it. Right. OK, I, I want to transition us a little bit to type one, because I think that's the one we're not talking about. When you talk about the I love that you said diabetes police. That is money. I'm sure there are a ton of people out there like mm-hmm. that. Okay, well, with type 1, it's not a choice. Mm-mm. It very much is familial. It often is coming in at early ages. Mm-hmm. I think we have to start with your story, Laura. Yeah. Talk about, I mean, you were three years old. You're kind of comprehending what's happening, kind of not. And then you're dealing with that at every major change in your life. Yeah. Let's... Let's hear it. So, yeah, I was diagnosed when I was three. I honestly don't really remember it. I have very cloudy visions of going in to get my blood drawn. I don't remember being in the hospital. Um, Don't remember those early stages. You know, I've been told I fought the shots like crazy. Don't remember it. But 
truly type one's been all I've ever known. Because think about how young you are when you kind of have your first memories. So I grew up that way. And essentially, when I was a kid, type one treatment was a lot different. And to put that into basic terms, we matched the food we ate to our standard insulin amount we got. The insulin amount didn't change. So you had to make sure you ate breakfast the same time every day in the same amount. You had to have your mid-morning snack, otherwise you might have a low blood sugar. Lunch had to be the same time every day, same amount. And it was that way with every meal. So as a very small child, I knew exactly how much I needed to eat. We called them exchanges back then. And always kind of had to be this responsible little kid and could never really be carefree. I think one of the biggest things for me growing up was there was no one else with type 1 that I knew. So I always felt very alone. Granted, my parents, my siblings, everyone was amazing, but I didn't know anyone else who was going through the same thing as me. And that caused a lot of anger, and I didn't know where to project that anger to. So unfortunately, I projected that on my diabetes doctor and their staff who was up in the cities we had to go see him every three months and I was not very nice to them but it was really me as a child I had all this pent-up anger because I felt alone no one was having to go through this and I didn't know what to do with it so growing up it was really tough I can't imagine how helpful it would have been to see an adult with type 1 who looked normal looked like they had a normal job did everything everyone else did, but I never had that. So growing up, I just wanted to ignore my diabetes. I mean, I still took care of myself. And I remember my mom saying at a doctor's appointment when I was maybe about 13, 14, maybe you could be an endocrinologist someday, Laura. And I was like, heck no, I don't want anything to do with this. I'd go to my doctor's appointments. They'd say, Laura, I know it's hard, but you got to do this. And of course, in my mind, I'm thinking far more colorful words, but like, no, you don't. You have no idea how hard it is. And that would make me so angry. You know, I wouldn't go to a patient who's going through chemo and say, I know how, how hard this is. No, I don't. I have no idea because I've never experienced it. So then when I was 16, I got a new diabetes educator. Her name was Janie. She came in and she said something along the lines to me of, Laura, I have no idea how hard this is, but I'm going to walk with you through this and help you through this. And it was just like a uh, flip switched, switch flipped. And it was then that I decided I want to be what I never had as a kid. I want to be that adult role model to people just to prove that you can do it and you're not alone. So that's when I decided, hey, I want to go be a registered nurse, be a diabetes educator so went through Augustana, got that. Unfortunately, when I was, I was about 21, one thing that's really important is to get a yearly diabetes eye exam because they look to see if there's any blood vessel changes essentially in the back of your eye because diabetes can affect that. And during college, I didn't get one for maybe three years. So then when I finally went in my senior year to get my first diabetes eye exam in a while, it turns out I had full-blown diabetic retinopathy in the back of my eye so the blood vessels had been damaged this is something that it's progressive and can eventually lead to blindness so I had to get hooked up with a retinal specialist 
And it was a pretty scary time knowing that I could lose my vision in my left eye and this all happened. I was about to graduate from nursing school, was going through all this treatment. It was pretty intense. I was getting what's called laser in the back of my eyes, getting injections in my eyes, which you cannot look away from that, Ben. <laughs> yeah, I've had eye surgery and yeah, it's awful. Yeah. So then it was, I graduated, everything was going great. That August, I started my first job as an RN, felt like God really called me to do this. And all of a sudden, I saw this bright flash of light in my left eye, and then everything went cloudy. And of course, this is on a Friday at like four o'clock. So I call my retinal specialist thinking, oh, you know, whatever. And they're like, you need like you need to get here. So they did let me wait till Monday to come in, but essentially I had to have emergent eye surgery because a blood vessel had broken in the back of my eye. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh my goodness, if I'm blind in one eye or I lose my vision, I can't be a nurse. This is what God, God has called me to do. What is happening? Like, I really thought this was my path. Luckily, had emergent eye surgery. It was successful, but actually I didn't have vision in my left eye for a month because it was full of blood essentially that had to drain out. So I got to go see my retinal specialist like once a week for a long time, would be there with, you know, all the 80 year olds in the eye doctor clinic. Eventually that stabilized. It took a year or two, ended up having that surgery in my right eye as well for more of a preventative thing like that. But you know, now, even with glasses, I have about 20, 40, 20, 60 vision in my left eye. Night vision's kind of tough. So that was really impactful to me because even as a teenager, people would tell me about all the complications that could happen. And of course, in my teenage mind, I thought, well, it's going to be like when I'm 60, which is ancient. So don't really care. Or I'd hear of people who had the complications, but they didn't check their blood sugar for like four months. And I was like, well, I'm not that bad. So that was really, really life changing to me. So I would really like to encourage anyone who's listening with diabetes, go get your yearly diabetes eye exam. Very good. Because um, that's very, very important. You have no symptoms from it until it gets very far progressed. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've looked back on my diabetes journey and I've really realized that type 1 is kind of an invisible illness in the sense of you can't see my diabetes unless I'm pulling my pump out at mealtime. But it's so much more than that. With type 1, they say we make on average an extra 180 decisions a day. I'm always constantly thinking about my diabetes, whether that's, hey, I want to exercise later, so maybe I should adjust my insulin at this mealtime because I'm going to be more active always making sure you have low blood sugar treatment with you everywhere you go, needing to know the plan for things. How are we going to get there? What's it going to be like? What the What's the food going to be? I'm factoring my diabetes into every decision I make, and that is very mentally exhausting. And that is why I felt so alone as a kid because I didn't know anyone else going through that. I finally met someone with type 1, when I became an ER nurse, they also had type 1 diabetes, and it didn't seem like they put that much effort into it, but they had great blood sugars where 
mine seems to be, you know, I could do the same thing seven days in a row and have five different results. And that's why type one can be so frustrating. So I just thought, well, geez, I'm just a really bad, you know, person with diabetes. But it was later on when I was about 25, I found out there was something called Camp Gilbert, which is a diabetes camp for kids with diabetes. And I volunteered to be a counselor there. And it was the most amazing thing, like fed my soul to go to this camp for a week. Everyone was in the same boat that I was. I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. You know, the kids get it. A lot of the counselors there have it. Just to be in a space of people who got it was so amazing. And that's really kind of when I decided, like, okay, I'm going to go to NP school. If there's a diabetes job, great, but if they're kind of far and few between. But decided, like, hey, I want to go to this next step and help kids even more because that camp experience was so monumental for me. Where Where is that camp? It is up by Bay, South Dakota. It's called Camp Gilbert. We haven't been able to have it the last two years because of COVID, but it's actually a Lutheran outdoors camp that they rent out for a week. Got it. Just to see your, what the listeners can't see is how you just expressed that physically. Like it's very clear that that was a very uh, impactful experience for you. So uh, I'm curious about this, this sort of discipline that you have to establish really early on with type one. was there a time as a kid where you tested the boundaries of that, where you knew that the consequences far outweighed the the freedom of not thinking about it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, people look at me now and they might be surprised, but I was even a you know, naughty teenager when it came to my diabetes habits. And, you know, I see patients who are all the way across a spectrum, but, you know, I never didn't not take my insulin but I did not check my blood sugar as often as I needed to. Or it's kind of, you know, like little kids, hey, did you brush your teeth? Yep. Like, hey, Lord, you check your blood sugar? Yep, sure did. What was it? Throw out a believable number, you know. Not that I did that all the time, but I would say that was the most I tested the boundaries. Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm not aware of what happens. What happens to you if you don't pay attention? Like, how do you know something is off? What what? What are, what are the series of events that happens if, if things go wrong? So there's kind of two ends of the spectrum. If you're not, you know, paying close attention, taking care of yourself, you could have blood sugar that's too low, called a low blood sugar. That can be life-threatening in the moment. Whereas if you're choosing not to take your insulin, not to check your glucose level, you can have high blood sugar, and that high blood sugar is more dangerous in the long run. So think about it. I always explain it. It's kind of like if you have a garden hose and water's running through it, it flows nicely. Well, if your blood sugar is too high, it's kind of like trying to push maple syrup through that. And it can be damaging to those blood vessels over time. So it can cause things like eye disease, kidney disease, things like that. It happens over longer term, um, whereas low blood sugar is immediately dangerous right then. How, why is that? Why is that immediately dangerous? So your body's main energy source is glucose. So you need enough glucose to function. One thing with type 1 diabetes, we don't have, or we kind of have a blunted hormone response, whereas like if Ben didn't eat for a day and went and exercise and had a low blood sugar, his body's able to bring that blood sugar back up 
on its own through sugar in your liver, essentially. Well, our ability to do that isn't there, essentially. It's a really long explanation I won't go into. But if your blood sugar goes too low, your body essentially can't function. If your blood sugar goes low enough, you can have a seizure, you can become unconscious, you can go into a coma because you've totally lost that energy source. Wow, okay, that's interesting. I really want to hear how you're impacting kids. So you, as a young person, were begging for that. Obviously, you can do a quick Google search and find Laura. Mm -hmm. But this exists in our community. Mm -hmm. What are the biggest impacts that you've made on some kids' lives that were probably searching for the same thing. And you could say to them, I know exactly what you're going through Mm -hmm. and let me walk you through that. Mm -hmm. So how did you give me, give me the most impactful story for you, not, not for listeners, but for you of getting a kid from a to B that wouldn't have done there without you. So I always share with my patients that I have type one at their diagnosis. There are some practitioners out there who have type one diabetes and care for kids with type one and don't share that. And I, that's obviously their choice, but I feel like they're missing out on this really special connection. I don't think I could ever describe truly how special that connection can be, but if you work in diabetes or are a parent, you just get it. I always said I felt really alone when I was a kid, not because I didn't have great support or anything like that, but I didn't have anyone else in my life who was going through it. So I decided to be, hey, I'm going to be what I needed when I was younger. I had a parent tell me, I'll often talk to parents if their child's not in the room. She said, the reason my daughter really likes you is because you make her feel like she's not alone. And that, I will never forget that. And the best part is, I could give you 10 examples of situations like that where maybe it's patients that I really don't feel like I'm making an impact, but then they say a short thing at the end like we're so grateful for you it's so nice to have someone who just gets it and it usually is definitely a god thing because it usually happens after a day I've had a really tough day I think I don't think I can do this job anymore it's too much and then a patient says something like that and it reminds me why I'm doing it all life-changing I mean not only life-changing health-wise, but life-changing soul-wise, too, in terms of making those kinds of connections. Um, So I'm thinking about, as you're talking, ways in which those of us who aren't confronting this sort of thing every day can think about how it affects others. And and one of the things that I really appreciated about uh, a preschool that my kids went to is that they just had a, a policy for birthday celebrations that if you wanted to celebrate those kinds of things in the classroom then these are the things we'd love for you to bring in. Bring in a craft, bring in uh, a healthy snack of some kind, but don't bring in anything with sugar. I didn't know that I would appreciate that so much until it happened because I just realized I'm just like stuck in this thought process that you must celebrate things, whatever the occasion is, with sugary snacks and cake and candy and cookies Mm -hmm. Man, my youngest daughter just she loves sugar so much, and and she just she'll just uh, maybe this is all kids I don't know, but it just seems like she just loves it, you know. So I have to 
manage that at home. But it's like, man, when she's when everywhere she goes, that's the choice. Mm-hmm. It's tough to manage. Mm-hmm. And so I was just thinking about that, I, how much I appreciated that, how much it helped me sort of change my thinking about, hey, there are other ways to celebrate stuff mm-hmm. other than cupcakes. Yeah. And I don't want to give the impression that type ones can't have any sugar. They definitely can. We can come up with a plan for those occasional instances. But if you think of there's 30 kids in a class, well, that's probably most of them have a birthday during the year. So maybe it's even as something as simple as let's bring in mini cupcakes instead of regular size, or let's bring in an alternative. You think of all these kids too, who have peanut allergies or all these other dietary restrictions. So if you bring in something non-food, it can accommodate everyone. Um, and that can be really supportive in that way, which is helpful. Um, some parents are really upset that they're not allowed to bring in food for celebrations, but even maybe just altering what you bring in can be really helpful. So, Laura, if I am a new parent and something's a little bit off with my kid mm-hmm. and I need to bring them somewhere, I'm obviously going to bring them to, my, to their pediatrician mm-hmm. right away. But what are some things I can just be on the lookout for? Um, not necessarily to fit them into a bucket of mm-hmm. diabetes, but but just to educate myself on what are some warning signs that I can look at to be like, okay, my kid's a little bit different. Something's going on here. What should I look for? Typically with type one diabetes, they'll have symptoms. They'll be insanely thirsty. Just can't quench that thirst because of that. They're probably going to be peeing a lot more. If they're potty trained, they might start wetting the bed again because they're just drinking so much water They might have weight loss because our body isn't able to use that glucose for energy because insulin kind of acts as a key to open this cell door to let that glucose in. So it starts breaking down fat. So we'll see kids with weight loss. They're probably going to be really lethargic or tired. But I would say thirst is the biggest indicator in unquenchable thirst that they just can't quench. I know for me, when I was three, my mom said I just demanded water to the extent it gave me a little pot belly and you could hear the water slushing around. So I would say those are the biggest things. You know, and you can always call your pediatrician family practice, say, hey, I've been noticing this. Is this something we should come in for? Run it by them. I mean, I think as any provider, we'd rather have you call us and say, hey, this is going on. Do we need to be seen and err on that side? Then, oh, well, they didn't seem that sick, so we didn't bring him in or call you. Right. Okay. Now, if I'm an adult and I see someone that either has diabetes, right, and and there are some visual things we can look at, what are the good questions to be asking these people? Like, instead of being like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to look at them, Mm -hmm. you know, just like, uh, I remember I, I, I have a little person and he's very vocal and we're in an airport and we're walking by two little people and my son is just staring at that person and like look look at that person look what's wrong with them and i bring grady over there and i say sir my son would like to ask you a question i said grady you need to ask him a question Mm -hmm. why are you different and his dad starts crying in the airport and he goes no parent has ever asked that their child to come up and talk to me all they do is look and stare 
And then usually nine times out of ten, the parents are like doing this little shuffle where mm-hmm. we're like, move them, move them over here. Don't, don't do it. Don't talk to them. But really, we all they want is for you to educate them. Mm-hmm. So, what are the things as we as adults can just put this thing to rest, right? Like they're already getting help, likely. So what do I, I don't need an opinion here, but I need to learn some more about it. Yeah. And you care about the person more than likely. So what are the things I can ask? I think the best thing, and especially if it's someone who's in your daily life is how can I support you? You know, is there anything I can do to help you? Whether that's even, you know, letting them know what the food's going to be at an event or what time it's going to start, what time are we going to eat? I think the example you just gave is perfect is to, even if it's, is it okay if I ask you some questions about it? Because I'm curious. But I would say the biggest thing would be, how can I support you? And not being the diabetes police. Because I can tell you, you could be supportive of me 99.9% of the time. But say I have a blood sugar that's super high and you say something like, oh, what'd you do for that to happen? I'm never going to feel like I can let my guard down around you again. Uh, yeah, that's really helpful. Um, what an educational conversation uh, today. I mean, I, I started this recording knowing very little about diabetes, even though I have people in my family that live with this. Uh, and so I just appreciate you answering these questions and giving us some language of how to ask the right questions in the right way. So thank you for, mm-hmm. for doing that. Uh, ben, I, I'm assuming that there's folks listening today that might have some additional questions about this or are affected by this in some way. Uh, maybe if they get in touch with us, we can point them in the right direction. Yep, that's exactly right. So uh, if this is something that maybe is uh, a part of your life or you have additional questions because it is part of your life, whether in your social sphere uh, or you just have some additional questions, please reach out to us uh, and we'll get you in touch with the right people. Obviously, like I said earlier, you can do a quick Google search. There's some awesome resources here in our town and likely in your community as well. Uh, so you can look up, how about this, Laura? What what typically should they be looking for if they're looking for a credentialed person to walk them through this journey? So anyone with the title Certified Diabetes Educator, or CDE, they've gone through that special training for it. Some really great online resources is American Diabetes Association. Association. They're gonna, they do have type 1 and type 2. Um, JDRF is a great one for kids, a lot of resources, or another website called Beyond Type 1. But I'd say the biggest thing is them having a certified diabetes educator on their medical team that they see, and they would have that CDE after their name and their credentials. Very good. So if you uh, learned something from Laura, you want to get in touch with Laura, please reach out to us. We'll get you in contact with her. You can reach us at mandate.pod at gmail.com. You can find us on the Insta. Uh, at Mandate Pod, uh, Twitter at Podcast Mandate, and now on Patreon. So, welcoming fans to Patreon for season two. It's such a wonderful support for our podcast. Obviously, there's uh, some nice perks there. You get the exclusive content from Joe and myself. We've got some stickers coming on the uh, on the way at certain levels, and now uh, we'll be introducing some Mandate Podcast logoed hats. Mandate merch. I'm excited. Mandate merch. So check out Patreon. Support us. We're so very, very thankful. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next time for a mandate.